You're listening to KRUI 89.7 Iowa City. Welcome to Bijou Banter, produced by the Bijou Film Board, a student-run organization at the University of Iowa dedicated to the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema. Since 2013, Bijou has assisted with the programming and operation of Film Scene, a nonprofit cinema in downtown Iowa City. As a disclaimer, all of the opinions expressed during Bijou Banter are those of the hosts and our guests and not those of KRUI or the University of Iowa. It's Friday, March 4th, 2016, and in this week's show, we'll be discussing three films that are about to open at Film Scene. Our lineup includes Logan's Run, which plays at Film Scene tomorrow night, March 5th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. Next, we'll be discussing Barista, which plays at Film Scene Sunday, March 6th at 10 a.m. This is a special screening presented by the Bijou Film Board and will be preceded by a coffee tasting and pastries provided by local coffee shops and vendors. Then we'll be discussing Johnny Toe's Office, which plays at Film Scene on Tuesday, March 8th at 6 p.m. as part of Bijou Horizons. Finally, we discuss the Oscars, who won, who lost, and who cares. Who cares? <laughs> who cares? Before we begin to banter, I should introduce my co-host. We have Catherine Steinbach. Welcome, Catherine. Hi, glad to be here. And filling in for Chong Min Yu, we have Pat Brown. Welcome back to Banter, Pat. Thank you. I'm glad to be back. And I'm Leah Vonderheide. I should mention that all three of us are Film Studies PhD students in UI's Department of Cinematic Arts. Let's start with our first film. Pat, as our guest host, <laughs> why don't you share your impressions of this sci-fi camp classic with us before we begin? All right. Logan's Run belongs to that subgenre of dystopian science fiction that preceded Star Wars in the 1970s. Instead of George Lucas's space opera, the prototype of these films is the 1968 version of Planet of the Apes, and probably, as I want to insist, several episodes of the original Star Trek series. <laughs> It imagines a future in which the descendants of the humans who survived whatever catastrophe we're headed for have built a domed city within which they've rebuilt society, with a few caveats, a few alterations that are supposed to make us as viewers think. The residents of the city live in a utopia, complete with free plastic surgery, sexual freedom facilitated by a sort of pneumatic tube self-delivery service for people in the mood, I suppose (laughs) what the 70s imagined Tinder would be. Escalators, men in tights, and even a monorail. There's one catch, though. On their 30th birthday, all Sidians are put to death in a ritual called carousel. To signify their age, citizens are divided into green for the young ones, I assume teens, and red, people nearing 30. And, and they wear skimpy clothing of the corresponding color, which makes parts of the film look like a kind of sexy Christmas pageant. <laughs> Not all 29-year-olds are okay with this bargain, however, and become runners, fleeing through the city's interconnected forums and leisure palaces, which look suspiciously like freshly constructed mid-70s malls. Logan Five, played by Michael York, is what his society calls a Sandman, for whatever reason, whose job is to track down these runners and terminate them. That is, until he meets Jessica Six, a green who opens his mind to the possibility that living past 30 might be pretty groovy. Together, they... They flee Logan's former compatriots to find a place called Sanctuary, to which numerous runners have escaped. Also, there's an evil shiny robot who looks like something straight out of Doctor Who. (laughs) So uh, this movie has a lot of cheesy fun in it. Uh, The shiny, the the aforementioned shiny robot, for example, uh, was a costume you could like literally see through. Like I saw the person's lips moving behind (laughs) uh, the mask he was wearing. 
the Sandman's guns are kind of just like light up noisemakers, uh, and you can see the explosive rigs on the ground whenever Logan misses his mark and shoots the floor, which is like every time he shoots. Um, and I was wondering if you guys enjoyed the goofiness as much as I do. I think that's the the part that appealed to me the most. And then a related question is, do you think this is actually a good movie or just kind of cheesy fun or good, bad movie? Well, I was wondering why Logan was trying to ruin the life of all of these young hot people. Like, <laughs> what's wrong with this world? <laughs> we, we all, we all, life just should end it. Though, yeah. right? It's There's over. nothing to live for after yeah. 30. I can attest. <laughs> I am 32. There is nothing good that has happened. You should be so lucky <laughs> to throw yourself at the be carousel. I want to be sacrificed at the carousel. The carousel is an interesting... Uh, and there's a monorail. I mean, it's amazing. Right, yeah. The, the monorail is pretty cool. I've seen speculation recently that that's actually what the transit of the future is going to look like. Like, cities will have, uh, like, interconnected, like, individual monorails instead of streets. Um, that would be that amazing. That sounds perfect. Yeah. I loved this film. I felt like I was going crazy watching it because my reaction was, I love this. I love this so much. Like, something must be wrong with me. Um, and I did, I really enjoyed the goofiness. Although, like, what's so funny about the goofiness? I must, with the robot we're talking about is the one in the ice cave. Yeah, the, okay. the, ice the one who must yeah. freeze them. Yeah, the ice cave <laughs> scene was the point where I was like, the production value of this film is so bad yep. <laughs> that it makes the plot confusing because I couldn't figure out if they were really in an ice cave yep. or if, like, it was meant to look like an ice cave even within, like, the diegesis of the of the film. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. Plus, that scene doesn't make a lot of sense. Yeah, it's not explained very there well. There are a few yeah. weird cuts in this movie where they're in the middle of doing something and then they'll just cut to to them being done with it like the part where they're the part where they're swimming back into the city toward the end of the movie uh it doesn't show them actually surfacing in the tank it just like cuts and they're suddenly in a pool inside the city and uh there's there are like these moments of missing continuity where it's clear like they didn't get the shot they wanted and didn't have the budget to reshoot or or something like oh, that oh it's yeah. tons of like not having the budget right like yeah. even the fact that they're just filming it in a mall in Dallas yeah, is yeah. hilarious right. to yeah. me where you're like you're in a mall and in that fountain that's in the fort worth gardens which i've seen so as soon as oh. they got there i was like oh that's just like that fort worth fountain that <laughs> is in the middle of a city not at the edge of the sea <laughs> yeah i guess i just i didn't realize i definitely made the joke while watching it with with, with one other person not just to myself um <laughs> that i was like man they're really using this ramada in really well. <laughs> Yep. But uh, I didn't realize it was an actual <laughs> mall. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> there, makes sense. there are literally, there are escalators. There. Yeah, <laughs> there's so many escalators in this future world. <laughs> Not obsolete. Yeah. Not obsolete at all, the escalator. No you can teleport all you want in that weird pneumatic tube Tinder thing that right. you were describing. But like, yeah, you still need escalators to get from one floor <laughs> to the next. <laughs> Well, and part of this, I like Pat. Obviously, I'm I'm like tinged with your already, you know, focus in your work. But I kept thinking, like, this is a video game. Why am I oh, watching why? a video game? Because they go to different levels. They're like oh, in the yeah. ice level, and then they go in the in the like 
They're in the love level. Remember that scene? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, because the the spaces seem to be like oddly uh, disconnected yeah. from one another. So it is really just like, oh, here's another scenario for us to explore. And, and they like go through it like, oh, so I went through these tubes and now I'm in the ice level. And then I went through these other tubes and now I'm in the outside world level. And like it, yeah, it just seemed like a video game. Maybe that's just evidence of how the science fiction genre has shaped the kinds of stories or the way that, that video games think of, of stories. I don't know. Maybe. Yeah. I'll, I'll write an essay about it. Yeah. Yeah. You're going to have to workshop this out <laughs> to do a nice publication on it. Thank you. Uh, so I guess my next question is about the sort of theme of this movie. Because uh, it's, you know, I, I kind of alluded to this. It feels a little bit like it's a, a message movie, you know, like it wants to make us think. And so I think maybe this is simplifying it a little bit, but it's sort of a statement against youth culture, like this sort of fetish, fetishization of youth in itself uh so it ends up like at the end of the movie it's about like valuing old age uh and embracing uh nature like they escape the city into nature that's not quite the end of the movie but it happens uh and the natural process of aging and all of that um so as someone on the verge of 30 myself i felt like it was trying to tell me to calm down that life goes on after 30 and i think this is it's kind of a, a lame message <laughs> because uh, so like it has the movie has all of these like psychedelic sort of post 60s counterculture motifs that has the li- sexually liberated society, uh, these sort of bright and saturated colors. Um, there's an extended slow motion sequence at an orgy. Uh, <laughs> and, and even in the, the middle the love co- shop, I think. Yeah. <laughs> And and there's a there's a, a laser show in the middle, but it ends up like the message of this movie ends up being, I think that uh, you know it's all about America and heterosexual monogamy um, as, a, <laughs> as like the sort of inevitable growing up of this society. Uh, that's my sort of reading of this movie's themes, and I was wondering if you guys wanted to react to that. No, you're totally right because the re- there's like the revelation that really men and women should be um, monogamous and spend their lives together and raise their children. Mm-hmm. And um, they lit- there's like a point in which the movie's message is like, look at this glorious old white man. He's the most amazing <laughs> thing we've ever seen. <laughs> he could teach us so much, you know, like, yeah. So it, it, it it's a conservative. And all of the conservative different turn. <laughs> representations of Lincoln going on. Right. <laughs> yeah. Portraits and... <laughs> The actual monument. <laughs> Was it striking that 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 sort of twist in the movie? Uh, we're giving away the twist, but they end up looking at the Lincoln Memorial. Uh, the movie's from 1976, so I think spoilers. Yeah, it's- <laughs> this uh, and it came after Planet of the Apes, right? Yeah, okay. yeah. This is yeah. wild. It was so crazily just like copying. Yeah, that whole moment and gesture. Yeah, and then that moment ends up in. Uh, the remake, Tim Burton's remake of Planet of the Apes, because Mark Wahlberg goes back to Earth and Lincoln has turned into an ape at the at the end. Oh, of yeah. The oh. Uh, so Let's it, spoil all the movies. <laughs> <laughs> My defense of that is that that is a terrible movie. The, the Mark Wahlberg. Oh. <laughs> um, no, but I think that... Um, yeah, it's the the movie, especially like the the scene around the fire where they just have this kind of like primal moment of like rediscovering the family, right? <laughs> like families exist, and so like, what's a mother and what's a father? And 
you know, all of these things that, I mean, I think that that's a pretty familiar trope with sci-fi, though. It's yeah. like, oh, so we've evolved past the nuclear family, and then we have to somehow rediscover it. And Yeah. Um, but yeah, it, it was very like, get married and have children, you know, and grow old gracefully, you know, <laughs> not like the cat man. Uh, no. <laughs> he was delightful. Uh, yeah, I, I, I actually probably among my favorite parts of that movie, other than the shiny robot, was the old man living in um, living in Congress, basically. Yeah. Uh, in Congress and in Congress with the cats. In yeah. Congress with the cats. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I kept like uh, during the fight scene in Congress. I was like, "Those are antique desks. <laughs> <laughs> like everybody, be cool. Those are priceless antiques." <laughs> Sorry, apropos I, of nothing. I couldn't tell if I really enjoyed or was really frustrated by the fact that this movie has lots of things, like lots of sci-fi trinkets and mm-hmm. like ways of doing things in the future that aren't fully explained, like. You just don't know why society has been set up this way, like why certain right. things got replaced with other things. Like at one point, she, he's trying to say like people used to fish for food in the sea. And she's like, that's so savage. But had we seen them eating anything before that? Like we don't no. know like what that was replaced with that they yeah. find this to be totally ridiculous. So that that sort of wor- <laughs> world building can be done really well where you sort of introduce those rules and those differences on the sly and on the go. But yeah, in this in this movie, I found myself uh, less intrigued by the uh, by the world they were building, and more sort of mystified. Like, yeah, where are the elders of the city, or whoever set it up, or where do these where do these rules come from? And it seems like I think the implication is that that computer that sends Logan on his mission is what's controlling everything, right? Right. Like the well, that's what I thought. Every time they're in a sort of back. Um, you know, boiler rooms and right. infiltrating the city's water system and all that kind of stuff. I'm like, so there's no workers anywhere right. who are aware that these places exist in the city. Right. Like, it's all self-sufficient because of the computer? I didn't understand that very yeah. well at all. Yeah, I think we're not supposed to think about that. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, of course we are. Um, yeah, I, I, I like the the idea of them like leaving so they live in what they think is the entire society so um it's them and all those other young people who just seem to like sort of party and hang out all day and then watch every night watch people go through carousel and get uh exploded um uh but then they like venture out and they discover not only like less clean areas areas that look instead of like the inside of a mall they look like the inside of a factory um, and they also discover like little sects of people who have decided to live within the dome, but outside of the city, which I, I think is, was an interesting, I mean, it's almost like they're discovering the, the, they start in a mall and then they discover the factory. Yeah. <laughs> uh, uh, but yeah, it does leave open that question of reverse like, modernism. Where, where, is, <laughs> where is the human infrastructure here? <laughs> All right. Well, we'll let you guys discover that this weekend. Where is the human infrastructure? Again, uh, <laughs> Logan's Run plays at Film Scene tomorrow night, March 5th at 11 p.m. as part of Bijou After Hours. For more information on Bijou After Hours, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss Barista.
Today, you hit the snooze bar. You checked your email. You checked your fantasy football team. You rejected an insulting trade offer. You ate your lunch. You did all the things that one normally does the day before a 175-mile-per-hour hurricane blows through your city, leaving it in a state of ruin. You never know when the day before is the day before. Prepare for tomorrow at ready.gov today. Brought to you by FEMA and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. Let's move on to our second film, Barista. Catherine, can you share your thoughts on this coffee doc before we begin? Coffee doc, yes. Uh, So this quirky documentary follows five competitors in the 2013 National Barista Championship. Chicagoan Charlie Habiger faces four Angelinos, Eden Abramowitz, Ryan Redden, Truman Severson, and Charles Babinski in a battle for mastery of the coffee beverage. We see these individuals prepare themselves physically and mentally for competition, but also philosophically. The expertise, technique, and showmanship involved have much to do with ideas of global commerce, sustainable and valuable products, perfecting one's craft, and qualifying one's sense of success in society. We see here that coffee culture has begun to approach wine culture in complexity and connoisseurship. The coffee bean's origin, roast, grind, and water saturation combine in myriad ways to produce taste notes that can be built upon, brightened, and amplified. But of course, like wine culture, coffee culture evokes a certain privileged status, a material and cultural glut of wealth and knowledge. I find it very telling that these competitors are mostly from Los Angeles and mostly hipsters. The undercurrent of specifically stylish obsession is hard to escape within this film and these subjects. I have to say, I love documentaries. I love food. I love culinary documentaries and TV shows and competitions in general. But I found this documentary to be a little tiresome, even though I mostly like the subjects, be they persons or coffee. There's something about this film that's not quite reaching my cinematic pleasure core, Perhaps it needed more history of coffee or sociocultural coffee context, uh, but regardless, it was less enjoyable than I thought it would be. Perhaps maybe we can begin our discussion with the relationship between filmmaker and subjects. Do you guys think uh, that the film respects its competitors? Does it maybe mock them uh, for their esoteric obsession with coffee? Uh, I I don't think this film mocks its competitors. No, I don't. I don't. I don't think so either. Um, I I think that it has this sort of like playful attitude toward coffee and coffee history. Like it has that whole introduction where an anonymous uh, old man with a very long beard sort of uh, quirkily introduces the history of coffee and of well, not even of coffee, but of coffee culture in the United States. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um. But I, I. But I don't think. Um, like there, there, there is plenty to potentially mock here if you <laughs> wanted to take such a, such an attitude, like a sort of supercilious attitude toward these people, um, like Truman's, uh, sort of like scientific experiments with coffee and distilled coffee. It's like, why, why, <laughs> but, uh, but it doesn't. And I think that, I think that's fine. I mean, I think it's, it's cool to actually, it's kind of, it's kind of goofy, but it's cool to experiment with distilling coffee for whatever reason. Um, yeah, I feel like this film is celebrating like passion 
You know, mm-hmm. I, I think especially the first maybe half of it, which I enjoyed more than the second half, um, where I did find it kind of starting to plot along and I, something was not, I don't know, something about the editing of that whole competition at the end didn't keep me on the edge of my seat. Yeah. Um, but the first half, I mean, I, I like um, movies about people who get really passionate about something and then you're just like in their world and learning about why they love what they love and they like are convincing you to love it too and I paused the movie 20 minutes in and went and got an espresso and brought it back so I could drink it while I was watching the movie because I was like I've got to I have to do this um wow it was a successful film I mean there's some stuff obviously that's tongue-in-cheek like the distilling of the coffee or the Babinski basketball shots are pretty hilarious um because they're like he's the king of the coffee world and they show him playing basketball on the court I think it's slow motion um (laughs) So, I mean, there's, like, a lightheartedness to it because it doesn't want to take itself too, too seriously. But I think it's a celebration of those passions. It reminded me a little bit of um, the movie Wordplay, which is about crossword mm-hmm. puzzles and people who love them, oh, yeah. um, which I think that movie is actually much more successful. Um, but it's similar in the idea of, like, what is it to really love something that most people don't think too much about? Yeah, but I, I, I mean, I have to agree that Especially the end of this movie didn't didn't really do it for me. It seems like they didn't like my guess is they didn't have uh like particularly special access to to this competition. So it, it feels like they didn't have a lot of material to work with for this competition that they've built up to, right? And then the way that they that it's end up being uh, that, that it's end up being represented uh just isn't isn't that dramatic or uh, um, uh, suspenseful or you know any of the sort of things that you would expect from the build up that they've given for this competition? Um, yeah, yeah. So maybe I should explain the competition a little bit more clearly. So the barista competition involves preparing three drinks: an espresso, a cappuccino, and a specialty drink, um, and. I mean, I don't really, (laughs) I didn't really know, I think maybe part of my problem with this film is like, I didn't really know what they were talking about so much of the time that they were actually in then in the competition talking about taste notes um, that I was just like, what now? What what are we talking about? You know, and I think that um, maybe that's where I'm getting the kind of... uh, subtle mockery or something is because we're not we're not really fully given like a primer on how to necessarily digest all of this and so then it all just seems like like just stuff word salad being thrown at you you know what i mean the competition is also kind of boring like (laughs) i I don't want to spoil things by like explaining too much but like you get built up i mean i feel like it's like what some people really (laughs) This is a weird comparison, but I feel like it's like why some people were disappointed by Magic Mike XXL because they felt like that last, the last competition scene was like all this buildup and then not enough payoff. Mm-hmm. Like that was sort of how Those I people felt are watching. wrong, but because, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Plus I got like plenty of pleasure for the first 90 minutes in that movie. Anyway, yeah. um, but in the, in Barista, it, I was like, it, it felt so built up in my head that then when I was watching the competition, I was like, this is not that interesting. And like, I don't know. Yeah, I thought oh. I was gonna like take my breath away and just be like, "Wow." <laughs> yeah, yeah. Th- there's that moment where one of them sort of screws up and goes, "Whoops!" Mm-hmm. And they and you don't know what he has done 
Yeah. Uh, and it's and like twenty minutes later that it, that yeah, we get twenty minutes the... later they finally explain how how he screwed up. But they they had, took such a long time in the movie explaining us the rules to the competition and really nothing else about coffee uh, about coffee culture. One thing that's missing in particular is where do these people get their knowledge sets? Right, like they're talking about. Um, how the chemistry of the coffee affects the taste and what flavors they should expect and why uh, it was roasted in this way or blended with this other bean and all of that stuff. And it's very technical knowledge. Um, But the movie doesn't talk about where its characters get this knowledge or where Truman got his, um, his chemistry knowledge, right? Yeah. None of that, none of that is there. So I, I, except for Eden is like, I read books all the time. Yeah. I read a lot of shots of her reading books. (laughs) (laughs) She reads books. (laughs) So were y'all rooting for anybody in particular? I gotta say, I was, I was like an Eden fan. Yeah. I liked Eden a lot. I, I was rooting for Eden because, I recognized her because she was on an episode of Conan for for five minutes. Uh, was she making coffee? I didn't watch that clip. Was she making coffee? Yeah, they went to Intelligentsia. And she uh, was just working? Yeah, yeah. Uh, so Conan and his producer, Jordan Schlonsky, with whom he has a sort of fake rivalry on the show, and they s- sort of do segments every once in a while where he's antagonizing Jordan Schlonsky for no reason. Uh, it's t- great. T- <laughs> Took Jordan Schlonsky to the Intelligentsia in L.A. Uh, because Jordan is like a huge coffee snob and only likes Italian espresso. Hmm. Uh, and she's there and she like explains the coffee and how they make it and all of that stuff. And Jordan is there to just say, no, Italian coffee's better. And end scene. And then, well, and then Conan uh, just does hilarious things. Like he brings his own like coffee mate that's like chocolate chip cookie flavored and then adds it to this like meticulously made coffee. Yep. And you can see Eden just like, oh my God, there's like terror on her face, which is delightful, Um, which is one of the reasons why I think she's very expressive. I think there were a lot of like kind of taciturn gentlemen Mm -hmm. in the, uh, in the competition so i was like eden's mcgal that's Mm -hmm. yeah well there's just like a lot of men in general it would yeah like there weren't it didn't seem like there were many female competitors yeah at the actual competition i think eve was the only woman oh yeah eden sorry (laughs) (laughs) um uh i guess i was rooting for ryan too though i liked ryan which one's ryan he's uh he had the kid he is the kid okay Yeah. yeah yeah i liked him a lot too yeah, I wanted. He was making ice cream. Yes, the ice and cream. And I wanted to eat that ice cream. Right, exactly. That but might have a lot. I to didn't do with stop the movie a second time to eat <laughs> ice cream. So, did this film alter y'all's opinions on coffee? I I'm not like a huge coffee drinker because it affects me like crack. Um, but uh, yeah, I can I can break open a radio and put it back together um, if I if I have some coffee. But I think that y'all are more uh, intense coffee drinkers than me. But did this alter any? Uh, opinions on coffee other than inspiring you to get some (laughs) Uh, i i mean i drink a lot of coffee and i like good tasting coffee but i'm too lazy to learn anything about good tasting coffee uh so i uh no i have to say no that i'm not this has not inspired me to either become a barista or like go find a book i think it has inspired me to finally get around to watching the 2006 or 7 documentary Black Gold which is all mm-hmm. about 
the coffee industry and coffee farmers and uh, and all of that sort sort of stuff. Uh, That's a good documentary. Yeah, yeah, which this movie does not really touch on at all. It talks a little bit about the labor of baristas and how little they're paid, even though they're often passionate and knowledgeable, et cetera, et cetera. But it doesn't really talk about like where really do are we getting this coffee? Mm-hmm. You know, um, which is a really interesting question about like the you know the current coffee craze is of course linked to sort of like um, globalization and. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, the easy, uh, the easy quote unquote fair trade of, uh, of goods across like national, national borders and stuff like that, uh, which this film does not seem cognizant of at all. It's just like, there are three waves as we're told at the beginning of the movie, there are three waves of, of coffee culture in the United States, but where do these waves come from? They seem to just be like, uh, the organic, uh, they just, they just sort of happen. Right. Uh, People just evolve to want different types of coffee. Right, exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, But like global markets are not really mentioned Mm -hmm. at all, uh, which are, of course, a a huge factor in how. Yeah, they name all of these sources of these coffee beans, but they don't ever, like, it's so present in the film in the background, but yeah, they don't really go into all of that, that global commerce. Well, and I, I mean, it would have been interesting to hear more about that in this movie, but one of the things I thought that was interesting and I think why the second half was a disappointment because that whole competition wasn't edited well or it just wasn't put together well in a way where like you felt like you were with them and rooting for them and understanding what was going on is because it's a barista competition it's not actually a coffee competition so the coffee has to taste good but it's not actually a competition about just like which coffee tastes the best there's all these other components about like what makes an actual good barista which is mm-hmm. definitely not something like service competitions that's like a whole different thing yeah um and yeah. it is different than just being a sommelier or something like that like they're having to do all these things about pouring water and making conversation and telling stories and while making i mean it was like it, that that was interesting to me like what is a service competition i've never heard of such a thing <laughs> guys i think i would do super well i would have a lot of stern looks and just like rolling eyes do you know that and. episode of Bob's Burgers where uh, uh, Gene has to do a table setting competition? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That, that's, I think, what service competitions are like. They're like table setting. Uh, like that episode of Bob's Burgers. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll end on that note. <laughs> Again, Barista plays at Film Scene Sunday, March 6th at 10 a.m., this is a special screening presented by the BG Film Board and will be preceded by a coffee tasting and pastries provided by local coffee shops and vendors, including Brass Ring Coffee, High Ground, Bread Garden, The Java House, Teaspoons, Wake Up Iowa City, and Water Street Coffee Bar. For more information, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. Before we move on to our third film, let's check on the weather. It is currently 40 degrees in Iowa City, overcast. Tonight, a slight chance of rain, then partly cloudy, with a low of 32 degrees. Tomorrow, Saturday, mostly sunny, with a high of 44 degrees. You're listening to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. Bijou Banter is a show dedicated to discussing films, playing locally, at Film Scene. Johnny Toe's Office is a 3D musical extravaganza that is equal parts Busby Berkeley, Fritz Lang, and Adam Kay's The Big Short. 
Adapted from Sylvia Chang's stage play Design for Living, Johnny Toe's office is set in 2008, shortly before the collapse of Lehman Brothers. At the Hong Kong-based Jones & Son Corporation, which is preparing to not only go public, but also merge with an American cosmetics company called Madame. This corporate setting is crisscrossed with fine wine, designer shoes, and oodles of illicit love affairs for intrigue. Li Shang is the bright-eyed, big-eyed young probationary who immediately falls for his fellow intern, the beautiful and mysterious cat. Winnie Chang, played by Sylvia Chang herself, the author, is the company's seemingly implacable CEO who pines for the married and perhaps indifferent board chairman Ho Chung Ping. And, of course, the overworked and underappreciated accountant Sophie Liu is crushing hard on the company's most reckless and ruthless executive David Wang. All this takes place on a Brechtian soundstage resembling Lars von Trier's Dogville, decorated with Fritz Lang's giant clock from the always-already-relevant Metropolis. <laughs> Catherine, Pat, uh, I thought this movie was a delight, and I would recommend it without reservation. Can you say the same? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Next question. I, I agree. <laughs> no, I, I really liked it a lot. Um, and I thought that the musical numbers were really, like, they spanned a lot of different moods, which were really interesting. I thought some of them were really, really sweet, and there were some really romantic ones and really playful ones. So, yeah, I thought it was, like, kind of a an emotional roller coaster, but a treat. <laughs> a treat. And you didn't find... Um, the unusual set, the singing in a different language than your own. Any did any of that trip you up, or or where you would say, ah, this was actually kind of hard to watch, or anything like that? Like it was, you thought flawlessly done. I think it takes a little bit of adjustment. Certainly, like with any film that's in another language, you're just you, like the. I feel like the first fifteen minutes, you're just like, okay, I'm I'm like looking up and looking down and looking up, and and then you, uh, you know normalize into it but also because it's a musical it i mean so much information is being conveyed via that that you don't necessarily i don't know there's not a um this kind of confusion that that sometimes pops up for me when watching like an intricate foreign film yeah i I found the film pretty easy to follow i will say that the subtitles in the screener print were kind of small (laughs) but that's not really the fault of the film (laughs) <laughs> no, I thought I thought the film it it looked wonderful. I thought the de- the set design was was fantastic. I really liked the sort of, I mean the the sparse look of a of a like barely decorated soundstage kind of looks like a modern office building. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. It's, it's almost like uh, it. You know, you stop noticing at a certain point because it really just looks like the ideal design of a modern office, which is like no clutter, no decorations. <laughs> uh just just bare sleek um floors and uh see-through walls it almost felt like like ikea a little bit too yeah like because you could just you could move from one part of the stage to another and suddenly be in someone's bedroom or be at the office and like yeah i felt like i was like in an ikea (laughs) (laughs) the movie seems to question values such as company loyalty moving up the corporate ladder and capitalism generally. But does Johnny Toe's office offer a definitive message regarding global capitalism? Wasn't sure at the end where this film came down. Ooh. Uh, I don't I I don't think so. I mean, this it's it's about like um it's it's about uh 
a major corporation and how the fate of that corporation is affecting relationships between people in that in that company right and you know i think i think it's kind of just a, a melodrama in that setting i don't know that it actually has much of a critique where would you see a critique of capitalism in the movie well i mean i think that the david character is like kind mm-hmm. of roundly um like despised demonized rhetorically like he by striving he's seen as a bad guy mm. um and the idea of working you know sophie you know she's working all these late hours at the expense of like her own personal relationships and you know i think like it's i i, I think that there's something that the movie's saying about does this corporate culture kind of like corrupt your sense of morality inherently mm. or is the movie just saying like some people are corrupt <laughs> <laughs> and they're going to be in this corporate culture but they would be anywhere i don't know i i think that i i did see some, i mean there is a certain amount that the the like corporate intrigue uh is, is based you know on interpersonal stuff but um but there is this this kind of sense of um, each generation coming in kind of hungry and then rising through and getting corrupt and then being ejected. But I think that that was kind of like an idealistic view. Like I feel like the real view is that they they get corrupt on their way up and then they just stay, right? Um, <laughs> it's like our our David character is actually would actually be promoted instead <laughs> in in the like true uh, critique version of this film versus like the kind of implosion that, that tends to, um, to take over like the kind of frenzy of. He, he gets punished narratively. Yeah. Therefore like everything is kind of set back in its place. Yeah. Well, what did you make of the representation of gender in this film? Are we to believe that women can be successful in the business world? And if so, are women encouraged to use their feminine wiles and resources to succeed or is their femininity portrayed as their downfall? I feel like this movie viewed it as the downfall. Certainly Sophie, like I was very in on on the the whole uh subplot with Sophie and David. I was I was in, I was my favorite song occurred during that <laughs> subplot and uh, yeah, she was she was adorable. Um Wait, Sophie the accountant? Yeah. Okay. And so and she was certainly like just like literally seduced into the the you know the corruption yeah. uh of David's character. So um, so that certainly happened. And then the kind of intrigue of, um, you know, uh, between our CEO and the chairman and, and that, like that dynamic being the one that, that is kind of setting in motion paranoia. And I don't know, there was something about like their romance being the toxic element, not necessarily anybody's particular business practices. I don't know. It was, <laughs> I don't know. It, it was definitely romantic uh, jeopardy that everybody was, was stepping into. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I uh, especially in re- in relation to so- Sophie's character, who sort of has a, a tragic story. Um, well, I mean, not tragic in the traditional sense, but um, uh, and yeah, Cat Cat's character is also sort of like. Um, unable to to handle off office gossip and, and that sort of stuff. So I don't know, like there aren't, it doesn't seem like the, the office that is depicted has many female characters who aren't by the end 
compromised in, in some way, right? Yeah, I mean, I because lo- I loved Winnie Chang. Like, I thought her portrayal as the CEO was mm-hmm. really exciting to watch, and they sing this whole song about her being like, you know, perfect, <laughs> mm-hmm. and they don't know what's you know what she's ever thinking, and but she is ultimately kind of like put in her place in a sense, or like, yeah. it, or there's this sense that she needs to be put in her place, and that that disappointed me, I guess. Yeah. Like, I was surprised. But then she wrote it. Like, then I was like, but you wrote this. <laughs> <laughs> the name of the play is also the name of a Noel Coward play, Designed for Living. Yeah. I, I'm not sure what to make of that. <laughs> I think that there is a reference in the, in this, in Sylvia Chang's play that, like, references that. There's some sort of reference. Okay. But I, I don't know why you would name it the same exact yeah. name. I wasn't able to figure that out. Just brought it up. So for me, there's always something thrilling about seeing another country and culture's genre films, um, films that usually stay within their domestic market. I don't know if you guys agree, if you like that, or if you find it weird. Um, But why don't non-Hollywood genre films circulate more? I don't know. I think that that genre is so pleasurable that we should just have more of a global marketplace for rom-coms and musicals and <laughs> i'm i would be super in uh to all of that i mean i guess horror uh circulates much I, more i was gonna say like certain genres do like ho- horror and horror from korea and japan definitely circulates pretty well um but they're not being played in like the local multiplex nor are they played in art house cinema uh cinemas either you know what i mean like these are films that seem like they you can get them now especially because of things like netflix and whatnot but they don't like it's very uncommon to go to the movies and watch a genre film from a different country right yeah yeah i mean i think that a lot of times our mainstream markets if they're gonna bring in something from outside then they remake it um, and then we're we know we're we if you ha- are in the know, then you know that you are watching a foreign genre film. It's just been redigested as an American genre film. Um, but yeah, again, this often happens with um, with horror, you know. But but yeah, that's not like pretty rarely maybe a comedy here or there. But like, oh, I don't like, know. Com- comedy is pretty. I, that's something that doesn't translate very well. I was going to say with musicals and with comedies, I think it's just because music and comedy can be so uh, idiosyncratic and, and nationally specific in a way that I think other sh- genres aren't so much. Because they depend, like comedy depends so much on eliciting a very particular reaction, right? Laughter. And um, I, think, I think in general, co- comedies don't travel that well. That's my, that's my theory. Even action films, though, like, I, f- I find, mm. yeah, I mean, I get, unless they're getting remade into Hollywood mm-hmm. films. Well, there, were, there were a few years where kung fu films um, were really common. I mean, like, uh, I saw Hero with Jet Li at a multiplex, mm-hmm. like, mm-hmm. in the, po- the post-Crouching Tiger years. Yeah. I saw Beat Takeshi's remake of Zatsuichi in a multiplex. Um, th- those, like, the martial arts films, and to a lesser extent, the, the Japanese or Korean horror films definitely get a little bit of play in like in august right that's that's when that's when the the major distributors release the the foreign films because uh it's a it's a nobody goes to the movies after after like in august and september and so they release 
act, foreign action movies that might actually be able to draw a few people in because they're action movies. That's that's my that's my theory. I think kung fu movies come out in August. Well, and we also like uh, was that last year or two years ago now when like Snowpiercer came out in August. Oh, right. So that kind of fits that theory. Yeah. And everybody like went to see it because Planet of the Apes didn't open until the next weekend. No, I don't know why. <laughs> Um, all right, so uh, again, Johnny Toe's Office plays at Film Scene on Tuesday, March 8th at 6 p.m. It's part of Bijou Horizons. For more information on Bijou Horizons, check out Bijou's website, bijou.uiowa.edu. After a quick break, we'll be back to discuss the Oscars. KRUI is brought to you by Harper College in Palatine, Illinois, offering summer classes from May 23rd to June 6th. Harper College offers multiple summer gen ed classes to help students balance their fall and spring semester course loads. More information about registration can be found at harpercollege.edu summer. Welcome back to Bijou Banter on KRUI Iowa City. This is a show dedicated to discussing films playing locally at Film Scene. But let's talk about the Oscars. Um, We all have questions to discuss regarding this year's show, hosted by Chris Rock and the awards themselves, many of which were surprising, but of course, all still super white. (laughs) uh, Catherine, why don't you start us off? Yeah, okay. So I want to start at the beginning. (laughs) Um, so we should probably just talk about Chris Rock, um, and his opening monologue. Um, I, I'm like a pretty big fan of Chris Rock in general. Um, but, uh, I, I was a li- by the end of the opening monologue, I was, I was like, oh no, <laughs> what's happening? <laughs> We've gone off the rails. Um, and I think it was because of this, um, uh, kind of mocking of the Ask Her More campaign, which he does right at the end. Um, So he's done this kind of uh, interesting and funny, um, uh, you know, obviously racial commentary, uh, which he was bound to do. Um, And some of it is a little bit problematic, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, But then he talks about the Ask Her More campaign. Not everything is racist. Not everything is sexist. Why, Why are we asking saying ask her more it's just because guys are all wearing the same thing um except for jared leto yeah (laughs) yeah Uh, jared leto is always the exception um (laughs) and uh so then i don't know there's a little bit of uh this pushback against uh that ask her more campaign at the end of his opening monologue and I, i thought it was weird because he was not only like so he's like belittling uh, the Ask Her More campaign, but then by associating it with like, oh, and then and not everything is racist. He's also like belittling the argument he just made <laughs> about um, about racism in Hollywood. Yeah. Um, so I was like, wait, what are you doing? Um, so I don't know. Uh, was Rock uh, right to mock this movement in comparison with the omission of black nominees? And how might he have stumbled in his gender commentary over the course of the show more? More broadly, do you guys think? The part that really got me about that was when he ended it, you know, he's saying his argument was basically like, uh, we ask women, we ask women at the Oscars what they're wearing because the men are all wearing the same thing. Therefore, that's not sexist. When really, I would say the fact that we expect women to all be wearing like different 
gowns and showing off their body in different ways, whereas the men have, like, a set formal attire that they're supposed to wear. That's, like, precisely where the sexism is, yeah. right? <laughs> uh, and and so, to, to me, it's, it's, like, it's not even a matter of just asking the actresses more, but the question is, like, why do we expect them to wear... Uh, to wear designer designer gowns um, and uh, and and expect this sort of uh, variety and in, in spectacularizing themselves that we don't expect from from the men, and so I think like <laughs> in arguing that it's not sexist, Chris Rock actually pointed out exactly where the sexism is. <laughs> Yeah, something like that. (laughs) Yeah, so I totally agree with that analysis, Pat, because I've been thinking a lot about this intro and all of the different things that people had problems with. And again, like he made some problematic and super offensive comments at certain points in the evening. But I actually think that throughout the evening and throughout that opening monologue, he was almost working with like a dialectic strategy, right? Like some people have take an issue with the idea that he said nobody protested the Oscars in the 60s because we had real problems to worry about. But the fact is, is that black actors did pick at the Oscars in the 60s. And and he specifically makes um, a, a reference to lynching in the 60s, right? Yeah. He uses a lynching thing. And and he, it's not like he doesn't know that this is the year of Black Lives Matter. And it's not that he... I think he's specifically saying, like, and today people are still lynched. Like, if you shoot somebody in the street as a cop and you don't get indicted for that crime, like, that is essentially a lynching. That's when you've decided to become judge and jury. And so I think he's pointing out, much like the Ask Her More, like, his joke about Ask Her More points out the exact sexism at the center of that, much in the same way that those two statements, when put together, nobody... You know, nobody protested the Oscars in the 60s. They had real things to worry about. And as if we don't have things to worry about now, like it points out both of those actual things. Oh, interesting. And he does, at, at the end of the broadcast, he gave a shout out a shout out to Black Lives Matter. Like it was one of the last things he said after he said goodnight. He said, Black Lives Matter, goodnight. Yeah. I, so I just think, um, I mean, it, we can talk about the Stacey Dash thing too, which is like a confusing, crazy inside joke that's going yeah. on. But it like does the same thing where it like kind of folds in on itself in a really interesting way to make an interesting comment about conservative African Americans in this country and like what happens like when they start talking. <laughs> like I don't know. I just I found some of the things that people like have taken specific issue with, I feel like haven't thought through the actual trajectory of that first monologue and the trajectory of the things that he was doing throughout the night. That's interesting. That's, that's yeah. an interesting take. I didn't, <laughs> I didn't think about that. Yeah. I, but at the same time, don't you think that, I mean, this is such a mainstream audience that he's speaking to. Right. So in a certain sense, I thought that he was um, trying to make like, I don't know, not like wholly acceptable commentary, but like, I don't know. I I was like a little bit worried that he was trying to like work the center by by kind of punching around the sides. You know what I mean? Um, I don't know. I guess I'm just using Creed. But he had to do. (laughs) He had such a big task ahead of him because the thing about the Oscars is that they're ridiculous and everybody 
knows that. Like millionaires in these crazy outfits who are so out of touch with everything. And so the very fact of boycotting them starts to feel silly because it's like, but they're totally crazy. But when you exclude like huge portions of the population and don't give them work and, you know, one of America's biggest and most important industries and you don't have people of color in positions of power in media uh, and cinema, like that is actually, that is super important and is, you know, both the problem and symptoms of other problems. And so you have to deal with it. Like, so it's such a crazy like collision of two things that you have to acknowledge. Like this is the dumbest show ever. It doesn't mean anything. And yet it means a whole lot and we have to talk about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) Can somebody explain? So I, I I Googled Stacy dash because I really like when that joke happened, I was like, who is Stacy dash? So she is, was in clueless. Yeah. (laughs) That is, that's the first share. Oh, not share. Dion. Uh, Dion. Um, right, shares the main character. Yeah, <laughs> I remember that. Um, so apparently she's a she's conservative, and she's on a show now. I forget what where she is herself and expresses her own opinions. She, she's not much in, like us. She's, she's not into Black History Month, and she is conservative. That's what I garnered from the internet. Now, what was the joke that <laughs> they just made her come out and? Say I like Black History Month, and that was funny because she doesn't like Black History Month. Well, she was. was? He was said that she was going to head up the new diversity, um, like program for the Oscars, right? Right. But she is somebody who's very outspoken about being anti um, diversity programs. Like she doesn't like BET. She doesn't like the the Spirit Awards. Are those the for? Yeah. Um, black actors singer I don't know I don't watch them (laughs) part of the problem Um, so I think it was like a and it's been a huge conversation in the African-American community and I think by bringing her out is like one of those things that's like a bunch of white viewers had to like google her name during the show to be like what what is this conversation and and who is she? And um, but so it was clearly like a joke that was speaking not to that mainstream audience, Catherine, like you were saying, like yeah. speaking to a very specific audience that might have been watching and a black mm-hmm. audience. And how often do hosts like think about talking to the black audience of an Oscars? What was night? nice about yeah. about uh, Rock's hosting is is that he had a taped segment. I, I think the best part of Rock's uh, uh, whole hosting gig was that he had a taped take taped segment where he went out and talked to black audiences outside of a, a movie theater in Compton. Yeah. That was uh, a great segment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, nobody like it, it was in this bit. And of course it's edited and, uh, edited to make a point, but like nobody had heard of bridge of spies or all of these other, other movies <laughs> that, uh, are nominated for Oscars and featured almost exclusively white people. Right. So that that was a really good moment of sort of like um, putting the academy in its place to to some regard, saying like you don't you don't rule audiences, you don't um, determine tastes everywhere. And I thought that was a pretty good moment. Yeah. Well, and then of course that woman who saw by the sea, (laughs) (laughs) Chris Rock's head exploded. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Yeah. So. Question about films that won. Yes. Just, Catherine, briefly, I know you watched Bear Story, the animated short that won yeah. the Oscar. 
any idea how that happened? Bears. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, I guess, I mean, I think we even <laughs> on the show didn't even really talk about it because we were like, boring. Yeah. <laughs> <Next>. um, <laughs> I mean, I, I thought it was like fine and it was, I think it was maybe just like very aesthetically beautiful and, and um, like intricate in its uh, animation style. So maybe that's one of the things that kind of brought it over the top I thought maybe World of Tomorrow and Sanjay's Super Team split the vote. Yeah. That was my theory. Yeah, that's probably a good theory. Because, (laughs) yeah, I feel like so many people I know voted for, um, uh, I mean, in the Academy. No, no, no. uh, Just kidding. Um, Just on their ballots, on their paper ballots, uh, World of Tomorrow or Sanjay's Super Team. So I feel like if... If that group <laughs> is any the group of 10 people we watch the Oscars yeah. with, <laughs> split the vote. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it, it was certainly like a very bittersweet story and it was like beautifully done. But yeah, I just, I thought maybe the other ones would carry it through being more. I've only seen one of those and it, it was World of Tomorrow, but I've seen it like three times. And so I have to say it's it very won. funny. It should it's have so good. I know. Yeah. Well, uh, 34.4 million people watched this year's Oscar ceremony, which seems like a lot to me, but apparently makes it the third least watched Oscars ever, what? or since Nielsen started tracking viewership in the mid-1970s, <laughs> so for what it's worth. Um, Stewart's Oscars actually had the lowest viewership, which I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, so will the Oscars be around forever, or will they start to lose relevance and people will just not watch them anymore? Is that audience still gigantic, though? I think that TV? might be worldwide. I don't think that that's just U.S. Thirty-four huh. million worldwide—that's yeah. that's tiny. That is tiny. I, I think that's I think that's worldwide. I don't think it's just I mean, American. The, the Super Bowl is like one hundred and twenty million, right? Or just in the U.S. Yeah. So obviously. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I I don't know. I mean, like, there, but I it's could be still, wrong. I could be wrong. Maybe it's the U.S. Somebody can fact check me. That's but, still far yeah. more than the average network TV show. Yeah, on a, especially on a Sunday night. Well, maybe not especially on a Sunday night, but it's more than the average network TV show will get you, especially these days, right? Because nobody watches network TV anymore. Well, so right. I, I mean, I that just like almost even, seems like part of the problem. Yeah, depending on what the overhead is for the Oscars, they, it must be pretty expensive to produce. But it's probably distributed among a lot of different groups. So probably the Oscars are with us for a while. I don't think we need Yeah, to I don't have any worries worry. about <laughs> yeah. it. Yeah. About the Oscars I'm going. super worried. <laughs> Save the Oscars. <laughs> Hashtag. Save the white Oscars. Oh, no. Oh, no. no. <laughs> and I have to say, this year I, I hadn't seen any movies that – didn't involve well it, that weren't World of Tomorrow, and then didn't involve robots or the desert. Let's say uh, <laughs> I know so, which movies you're talking about. Right. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I, I uh, even I, I'm pretty disconnected from from the world of the Oscars. I feel it's like I didn't I didn't see Room or Spotlight or even The Revenants. I liked Room and Spotlight. Those are my maybe yeah. my two faves. Same. All right, guys, we'll have to wrap up there. Uh, if you're interested in seeing film that challenges, inspires, educates, and entertains in downtown Iowa City, please check out Film Scene and Film Scene's website, icfilmscene.org. To learn more about the Bijou Film Board's unique and longstanding role in the exhibition of provocative and engaging cinema in Iowa City, 
please check out bijou.uiowa.edu. You've been listening to Bijou Banter. Catherine, thanks so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Pat, it's been wonderful to have you back today. Thank you. I'm Leah, and I look forward to more banter next week.